You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. A holy God who, rather than separating himself from us, sets us apart for special purpose, special relationship with him, and who, despite our brokenness, draws near to us and offers to heal us and rescue us from that and to love us. That's the God you worship. Amen? Amen. This room, this side of the room believes it, this side doesn't. We'll work on everybody, all right? I know you're just getting settled in. It's all good. But in the spirit of getting all settled in, would you do me a favor and would you reach out and grab your cell phone or electronic device that you may have brought with you this morning? Two things we're going to do with this. Number one, I'm going to ask you to open up to Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 26, if this is how you do scripture. If you're old school like me and you have a hardcover Bible, that's great too. The other thing I'm going to ask you to do is to silence your phone, if you would. Because if you're like your pastor, there are times you forget to silence your phone. And I've literally had my phone go off when I've been preaching on a Sunday morning. And some of you have been here to experience that. So we realize that a number of you don't get here in time to see our little slide that we put up every Sunday to remind you to do that. So if you would, that would be great. And really to set the direction of where we're headed in the Gospel of Luke this morning, I want to tell you a story. And for those of you who um, watched our sermon preview on Facebook this week, you've heard a little bit of this story. This is a true story. It did actually happen. It happened eight years ago. For those of you who have great memories, I shared this story eight years ago in one of my sermons, so it may be a little redundant for you. But probably for most of you, this is a story you haven't heard, and it is a true story. This took place just outside of King City on the other side of the river there on the west side. But the story goes something like this. About eight years ago, in August, this time of year, there was a student who was walking um, some railroad tracks near King City there, and railroad tracks not unlike these on the screens behind me, with signs posted everywhere, no trespassing, this is dangerous, don't walk on railroad tracks. Well, he was doing that anyway, for whatever reason. And this guy's name, by the way, was Dylan. And so Dylan Stewart is walking these railroad tracks, and just like in a movie, he falls through them somehow, all the way up to his waist. I don't know if he got to the point like where there was a trestle, like this one, and he fell through there, or what it was, but he fell through the railroad tracks, and just like in a movie, here comes a freight train. This was still an active railroad line, still being used to this day. And this very long freight train is coming. It's not going fast, thankfully, but this was on a curve in the railroad track. And so as the train came around the corner, the engineer of that locomotive, George Stanley, saw immediately that here's this kid in the middle of the railroad track, and he's not getting out of the way. So he hits the horn, doesn't do anything, and so then he hits the brakes. But the reality is a freight train does not stop quickly. Even when it's going slow, it's a lot of weight, it's a lot of mass. They don't stop like a car or a truck or a van. It takes them a while to come to a complete stop. So he hits the brakes, but it's really clear that the train is not going to stop in time before it reaches Dillon. And at this point, this engineer has a decision to make. What is he going to do? Every movie... Every drama, every play, every story has a big idea or a main plot that it is headed towards. There is a tension point that is reached. There is a focal point that is built towards where there is a conclusion to the story. It's true of this true story about Dylan. It's true about the true story 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the last several weeks and months, we have been journeying through the gospel of Luke. And really starting with Luke chapter 9, Luke very purposefully and intentionally begins to build the story towards what we're going to look at today. This is the focal point of where the gospel of Luke has been going. The cross and crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Over half of this gospel has now been taking us on this journey as Jesus heads toward Jerusalem where his death is going to await him. And it brings us to what we're going to look at here today. If you were with us last week, Gabe took us through the passage that precedes this and helped us see that Jesus is betrayed. He is abandoned by his disciples. He's taken. He's arrested. He's tried. And now he is condemned. And he is headed towards his crucifixion. But the cross demands a response from you and me. In fact, you cannot not respond to the cross. You will respond to it. That's not the question. The question is, how will you respond to the cross? And that's what we're going to look at today. So in Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 26, I'll read this to you as we put it up here on the screens. And this is what I want you to watch for. I want you to watch for the responses to the cross because Luke very deliberately helps us see a variety of responses to what's happening. But I also want you to look for the ironies that are throughout this story of how people respond to the cross. And then we'll look at that together. So here we go. Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 26. As the soldiers led him, Jesus, away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals. One on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since we are under the same sentence? We're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So let's begin to look at some of the details that Luke captures for us in this story. He tells us right out of the gate, there's this guy named Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was what is now known today as modern Libya. He had come a long ways, presumably, to celebrate the Passover. So why does Luke name him? We don't really know why. But what we do know from Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion is that Simon's sons were Rufus and Alexander, and they're singled out in Mark 15. And the way they're singled out there suggests that Rufus and Alexander were quite possibly early leaders in the church and early disciples of Jesus. This was most likely their dad. And that's why he's being singled out. So we go on, and Jesus turns to this group of women who are mourning him and crying, and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And that daughters of Jerusalem, that's, that's a term of respect and endearment. But the words are strong. And we know from what Luke has told us and what Jesus said that in part, really in large part, what they themselves are mourning over is Jesus. But they're also mourning over the fact, as Jesus is reminding them here, that Jerusalem is going to be obliterated. And this is historical fact. In AD 70, the Romans raised it to the ground, including the temple, just like Jesus said they would, as part of God's rightful judgment on the nation for rejecting Jesus and choosing not to believe in him. But there's a bigger picture here that is very applicable and necessary for you and I to understand that Jesus connects to. He reaches all the way back into the Old Testament in those last words there where he says, they will say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. He reaches all the way back to the minor prophets in the book of Hosea, written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And this is about a greater judgment. This isn't just about the judgment on the Jewish nation and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem because they rejected Jesus. This is about God's judgment on unbelief for everyone who chooses not to recognize and follow Jesus. This actually reaches forward to Revelation chapter 6 where the same language is used to describe the day of the Lord, which is when Jesus will come back a second time, which we're all waiting for as those who love him and, and follow him, when he will offer deliverance and full redemption and restoration of the way God always intended things to be, all the brokenness in the world fixed, but also on the day of the Lord is judgment. He will judge everyone who has had multiple opportunities to see him for who he is and to worship him as the one true God and who have rejected him. He will call them to account. So this is not just looking to what's going to happen soon. It's what's going to happen at the end of time. There is a greater judgment here on unbelief. We'll come back to that, park that for a minute. It says that two criminals were crucified on either side of them. Sometimes they're described as thieves. What this word really means is terrorist. You see, you wouldn't get crucified for stealing things back in that culture. You would be crucified for opposing the government, for taking life in the name of rebellion and revolution. 
And that presumably is what these two men had done. More than likely, they were linked to Barabbas, probably part of the same crew that Barabbas rolled with. But they were terrorists. These were not good people. These were the vilest of the vile. They had murdered. They had killed. They had done a whole lot more than steal. And so therefore, they were being crucified. But this also reaches back into the Old Testament because it tells us in Isaiah 53 that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. The Messiah would be killed with criminals. And what's happening here? The Messiah is being crucified with criminals, with terrorists. Fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It says that they were crucified at a place called the Skull. We're not sure where this is, but when I was in Jerusalem a couple years ago, this is the site where they believe the hill of the skull is. They, some, many, believe this is the hill. And if you look a little closer at this, this is taken from my phone. That kind of looks like the eye slits of a skull. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, there was a little cave, a little opening below the face there that looked like a mouth. Is this the hill of the skull? We don't know. It was shaped like a skull, wherever this was. It's called Golgotha in Aramaic. It's called Calvary in Latin. Okay, It says they divided up his clothes. Once again, Old Testament prophecy, Psalm 22 says this would happen to the Messiah. That the minimal possessions Jesus has, they're dividing up among themselves with the soldiers. And here comes one of our many ironies I asked you to watch for. So the religious leaders who should recognize who Jesus is don't. And they take it a step further and they're mocking him and telling him to save himself. And the irony is he can't save himself because he's dying to save them. I mean, he could. He's God. He could save himself. He's choosing not to because he's saving or trying to save, rather, the very people who were sneering at him and mocking at him. And here's another irony. Here is this terrorist, this bad dude, who totally gets who Jesus is. He completely recognizes him at this point for who he is, And so a terrorist is saying that Jesus is innocent. And then he turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Before we go past this, a couple of realities here that we we need to take to the bank with us. Number one, do you see where he says, today you will be with me in paradise? There are some folks who believe that there's kind of an intermediate place between us and heaven. Sometimes it's called purgatory with implications. Um, Sometimes it's thought of as just kind of this, this kind of holding tank where you temporarily go. No, this and other verses make it very clear that if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you know him as your God, when you die, you will go to be with him right away. This is hugely comforting for us. And this is hugely hopeful for us because when we lose someone that we love, many of you have, some of you recently have, all of us will at some point. We say that we've lost that person and in a very real sense, yeah, we have. That's why we hurt, that's why we grieve, that's why there's pain. But we have not lost them in the sense that we don't know where they are. We know exactly where they are if they know Jesus. They're with him. And we take that to the bank because of verses like this. But there's another reality that we take to the bank from this. And it's this. Last week, my family and I got to take some vacation 
And we went up north to be with my wife's family. I love my wife's family. They are such a gift. I am I'm so grateful for them. Love to spend time with them. And my brother-in-law lives on the Green River. I mean, their backyard is right against the Green River. Now, when you hear the words Green River, for those of us who have been around a little bit, have lived a number of years, what comes to mind? The Green River Killer. It is what I think of every time I go to his house because of the river that runs behind his house. For those of you who don't know, Matthew Ridgway, the Green River Killer who they finally caught about 12 years ago, maybe a little more than that, was the most prolific serial killer we've ever known in our country. They know he murdered over 40 women. They think he may have done upwards of 90. And it took a number of decades before they caught him. And before they caught him, there was always this fear of who is this guy and where is he? Because it was very clear he was still around. Now, you need to under, now, this helps us appreciate and understand what's being said here by Luke. And it is the definition of the gospel. Do you realize this means that if this was the day the Green River Killer was being executed for the atrocities he had committed, and he were to turn to Jesus, literally, and say, remember me today in your kingdom, and Jesus says, Yep, you'll be with me today. How does that work? Really? A guy like that can enter the kingdom of God? Can be with Jesus in paradise? After all he's said, after all he's done, after the atrocities he's committed? Yep, just like this terrorist on the cross. How does that work? Luke, once again, helps us understand how that works. It says that darkness came over the whole land after Jesus died. For those of you with an Old Testament framework, many of the listeners and watchers of all this would have seen this and would have had this frame of reference. Once again, this reaches back hundreds of years, centuries, to the Exodus. The last plague before the death of the firstborn was darkness that came over the whole land for three days. Why is darkness coming over the whole land now? And do you think you would notice that if that was you? Well, let me ask you, where were you last year when we had the total eclipse? Do you remember where you were? Remember what you were doing? Once again, on vacation this week, we were driving to the coast this time, and we passed by the Evergreen Aviation Museum, and that a year ago is where I gathered with 10,000 of my closest family and friends to watch the eclipse. First thing I thought of when we passed it, it would, that, that is now my frame of reference for the Evergreen Aviation Museum because that's where we experienced the eclipse. Do you remember what that was like when everything got dark? Birds started to chirp? It was surreal. It was weird. Okay, this was not an eclipse. No one knew this was coming. Can you imagine this afternoon after church? We're all doing our thing this afternoon and all of a sudden it goes completely dark for three hours and it's not an eclipse. Would that get your attention? Would you always remember that? Would that be significant in world history? Yeah. Why? Because Jesus is taking the sins and the brokenness and everything that's wrong with this world onto himself. You see, he's not just dying for himself. He is dying for the sins and the brokenness of the whole world. And then it says the curtain 
of the temple was torn in two. Once again, Old Testament frame of reference. The curtain in the temple separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The only time someone could go into the holy of holies was the high priest on one day of the year, the day of atonement, and only after a lot of very necessary self-cleansing and ceremony and what have you because that was the direct presence of God. And now this 60-foot high curtain, which is four inches thick, is torn completely in two. So, so, Hebrews chapter 10 helps us understand what this means, where it says Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection tore that curtain in two because now, because of Jesus, we have direct access to God. You and I have direct access to the God of the universe. We don't need someone to do that on our behalf because that someone is Jesus and he's already done that on our behalf. It's huge. That's so huge. And as Jesus is dying, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, trusting the plan and work of God even as he's dying. And another irony, this professional executioner, which is what the centurion was. So again, frame of reference for you and me, the movies that you and I watch where there's an executioner or a hangman who has this hood over their head and that's all they do. They're a professional killer. That's who this guy was. His job was to crucify people. Very good at it. Completely unmoved by suffering and pain and death, evidently. And yet, what does he say? Surely this was a righteous man. And this is hugely significant because in the book of Luke, there are six times where someone ends up praising God. And in every one of those occasions, it's because they are responding to the saving work of God. Jesus has just performed performed a miracle. Like in Luke chapter 18, when he healed blind Bartimaeus, and it says the crowd praised God because they recognized this is God. This is God at work. And the centurion of all people gets it when so many people don't. And it says there were a lot of people there. The women who will get reintroduced to again at Jesus' resurrection next week when we look at that were there, but so were a whole slew of others. And everyone who was there that day had one thing in common, and it was this, they responded to the cross. Because the reality is you will and are responding to the cross. So let's make a case for that. What do we learn from this? Well, for starters, Luke paints a very clear portrait of those who are watching and taking it all in. But they don't believe. It's very easy for people to think that Christianity or following Jesus is really a spectator sport. And it has many different looks, especially passive unbelief. But one of those looks are folks who stylize or consider themselves to be good people, moral people even. Even people who are religious, they, they, they go to church, they sing the songs, they intellectually say, yeah, I believe that. And their life never changes. Well, they're busy. They're involved. They do stuff. They may even give money. But becoming more like Jesus, well, at the end of the day, in their heart of hearts, honestly, not so much. And you can tell by how they live their lives. A lot of people like that. 
Because you see, indecision at the end of the day is a decision. It's just another form of passive unbelief. And even if you don't think you're responding to the cross, you actually are. Passive unbelief is a response to the cross. You you are responding to the cross, whether you know it or not. But we also see another clear example of unbelief. Boy, you can't miss this one. It's active unbelief. This is the religious leaders. This is the soldiers. This is the first thief. They're mocking Jesus, belittling him, sneering at him, certainly rejecting him. But there's another kind of unbelief that is an act of unbelief that actually flies under the radar for some of us. And yet it's our story. And it's illustrated between the two criminals, the two terrorists, the two thieves. What does the first thief say? Basically, Jesus, you prove that you are God. And you do that by getting me out of here. I'm in trouble. You save me, we'll talk. You ever prayed that prayer? Ever heard someone pray that prayer? Know someone who has said that? Thought it? God, if you get me out of this, I'm yours. I will follow you. I'll become a pastor. I'll become a missionary. That's an over-exaggeration, but that's the idea. Putting conditions on God. Get me out of this trouble and I'll follow you. In contrast to the second thief who says, even if it means trouble, I will follow you. Do you notice the second thief doesn't say, Jesus, you better save my skin. Not at all. He wants to be with him. There's something there. Because you see, this God is not a God who is your or my personal assistant. He's not the genie who pops out of the bottle and gives us whatever we want. His agenda isn't to accommodate us or to give us the comfort we think we deserve or the conditions of our life that we think we should have. It's the difference between really adding Jesus to your life and making him the foundation of your life. Jesus did not come so that you and I could just kind of add him to our life and continue to live our lives on the same foundation we originally had. No, Jesus comes in and he completely changes who we are. You don't add him to your life, you make him your life. And you do that by believing in him. And we see that illustrated in so many ways here. But it starts with really recognizing who you are apart from him. Let's go back to the daughters of Jerusalem. Do you remember we looked at the reality that Jesus is saying, don't just weep for what's going to happen to Jerusalem and don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your kids. And what he basically is saying by way of reminder is, weep for those who will choose not to believe, either actively or passively. Because they will be held accountable for that. You see, it takes a certain type of humility to enter the kingdom of God and to choose and follow Jesus. You really disown your brokenness and disown your sin by beginning to own it. There's a greater judgment that Jesus is talking about here. It is the judgment upon unbelief, meaning it is okay to not be okay. It is not okay to stay that way. 
And you see this all the time. This is illustrated constantly. You'll see people say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, I follow Jesus, and by the way they live their lives, by the way they post on social media or whatever, I can say whatever I want, do whatever I want, act however I want, and, and God's going to love me anyway. My salvation's eternally secure. It doesn't matter what I do. You are showing by your actions and by what you're saying you don't know God or you're, or you're showing you don't understand the gospel. We're all broken apart from Jesus. All of us. We live in a broken world. We're broken people. And that's the reality apart from him. And therefore, we have to recognize who he is. Like the centurion of all people. Jesus was who he said he was. The centurion declared him to be a righteous man. And he praised God as a result. Do you? When you sing these songs, all the things in our lives that, that are worship, that are directed towards Jesus, is that genuine? Is that sincere? Or are you going through the motions? Because recognizing who he is means you choose to trust and obey him. And this is a, a defining moment and it's an ongoing process at the same time. The defining moment for me came to me when I wasn't looking for it. And there are probably some of you who didn't know you were looking for Jesus. But the Holy Spirit's been at work in your life and this more than intellectually makes sense to you, you know there's, there's, there's something to this and you intuitively get that. It happened for me at a... At a young life camp when I was in high school, many of you know my story. I wasn't looking for God. I knew all this stuff about Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, and I mentally assented to it. Yeah, I believe in that, but had my life changed? No. Was I following Jesus? No. Did I truly trust and obey him? No, not even a little bit. And God met me, and I realized that I really wasn't following him, and I also realized intuitively that it meant his conditions were follow me without reservation and without conditions. And I knew that this decision would be disappointing to my parents. First off, did not want to disappoint my parents, and I knew it would be. And my friends who were in my life at that point, they weren't going to get it and understand. I wanted their approval. I knew I wasn't going to have that. They're going to think I'd gone off the deep end and become some religious nut. But I knew, I knew that to follow Jesus meant those conditions no longer apply. Am I going to follow him or not? That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's what scripture calls us to when it calls us to believe. It means total commitment. Because you see, this God is always looking for if we will believe. Will we truly trust and obey him? And that's when it becomes an ongoing process once you choose to follow him. And this is where it gets practical for those of us who who know Jesus. God's always looking for faith and trust in your life with whatever happens in your life. And when God tests our hearts, when he's looking for faith, he always wants you to pass the test. I hope you believe that. Many of us have this distorted concept of God where somehow he has it out for us. Seriously, after what we're looking at with the cross, no one wants to bless your life more than the God of the universe, but it's on his terms, not yours. And sometimes his terms feel crazy. And sometimes, quite honestly, they're painful. But it is so worth it. 
if we will trust and obey and believe. On the other side, when Satan tempts you, he always wants you to fail, and he's hoping that you will fail, which brings us to the second thief. He says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. And we rightfully believe, yeah, that means when they die in just a short little while, he's going to be with Jesus. And in the presence of Jesus, it means more than that. To be with Jesus means he's with you now. You don't just choose to follow Jesus because someday you want to go to heaven. When you choose to follow Jesus, he is with you now. That means his presence, his power, his promises, even your position with him. And again, this gets real practical real quick for those of us who know him. This is about identity. Imagine you are a billionaire. You have more money than you could ever spend in a lifetime. Sounds pretty good, right? Sign me up. You are a billionaire. You've got some place to go later today. You're headed across our city to go see the Rose Garden or whatever. So what do you do? Well, you're a good Portlander. You call Uber. You call Lyft. Hop in. Take you over there. For some reason, you know, your, one of your mini limos doesn't work or you're not flying there or whatever. So you take Uber. You take Lyft. You're headed across the city. And you pay the driver when you get to your destination. And you pull out this wallet or this purse or you reach in your pocket, however you carry your money. And it's loaded, as it should be, with all these $20 bills. There's 50 $20 bills. You got a big wallet, big purse, baggy clothes. For all this money, right? So you take out a 20 and you slip it to the driver and you say thank you and you get out and you're walking along and later on that day you realize as you're counting your money, you're missing three $20 bills. Not one. You have 47 $20 bills, no longer 49. Something's going on here and so you panic. And you call Uber, you call Lyft, and you try to track down this driver. You want to search his car. Maybe it dropped out when you got your wallet out or your purse out or reached into that big pocket with all that money. But you've got to find this money, and you're so desperate that you can't get a hold of the driver, so you go back to the intersection where he dropped you off, and you're on the ground looking for this money. Now, all of us would look at that and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? You are rich beyond compare. What does a couple $20 bills matter Do you realize the same is true for you in Christ? If you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, you have a full relational bank account that is constantly getting deposits from his word, from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, meaning very practically, and this is where this comes home, when someone wrongs you, when that withdrawal comes in your life, how come you respond like that's all the money you had? How come when someone wrongs you, you cannot forgive them? How come when someone doesn't give you their approval, you feel unraveled or you feel like your oxygen is being taken away? You put your finger on the insecurity in your life and how come that determines and directs your life? Why do we do that? We forget who we are. We forget what we have. We forget what Jesus gives us, when you begin to realize what it means through the cross, that Jesus loves you, that he loves me, this is not easy, but it really is simple, then those withdrawals from your emotional bank account, your relational bank account, yeah, they hurt, yeah, they're difficult, yeah, there's process involved, and yes, it's a journey, but that does not define who you are, so why do you respond that way? Why do I? 
we forget what we have in Jesus. We forget what the cross means for those of us who have responded to the reality of what Jesus has done for us. And what has Jesus done for us? It brings us back to our story with Dylan Stewart. So here is Dylan Stewart. He has fallen somehow through these train tracks and he cannot get out of the way of this train. And George Stanley sees this as he comes around the corner with this train and he hits the horn and the kid doesn't move and he realizes something is wrong. He hits the brakes as soon as he can and then he does something that is just, it's remarkable. And this is a true story. George Stanley crawls out to the very front of this locomotive and he's hanging on with one arm. Now, in all fairness, he is a large human. He's 6'5", 350 pounds. He hasn't missed many meals and hasn't missed many days in the gym. He is a ripped big dude. He is what you would stereotype a locomotive engineer to be. Big, burly, strong. He's hanging out off to this train, and I do not know how this works, and I do not understand how it happened, but somehow he's able to reach down, and I guess it was the angle, but he lifts Dylan Stewart straight up just as the train is passing over. Don't know how that works. Don't know how it happened, but this is what I do know. He saved Dylan Stewart's life. And this is a true story. And what we're talking about today is a true story. This is a historical fact. This really happened. It is not a fable. It is not a fairy tale. The cross of Jesus Christ happened, and you are responding to it. The question is, how will you respond? And in our story with Dylan Stewart and George Stanley, if we were to make this even more representative of what Jesus has done on the cross for you and me, then it would be that as the train was getting ready to pass over Dylan, somehow George Stanley reached down and pulled him up, and he fell to his death, and the train ran him over. He sacrificed his life for Dylan. That's how the story should go if we are comparing it to the cross. That is what Jesus has done for you. The question is, how will you respond? Are you going to watch? Are you going to be passive? Are you going to say, yeah, I believe that, but your life is never really going to change because you've never truly received Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior? Or are you going to choose to believe? So as our worship team comes, and as we respond to this, God, as always, we have communion off to the sides. Will you remind you, yourself, rather, what Jesus has done for you? What the cross of Jesus Christ really means? Will you remember who you really are in Jesus? And what that means for your life, for your relationships, for how you respond to those withdrawals, the brokenness of other people, the the ways you've been wronged or hurt, the healing that needs to happen, it's, it's yours to have because of what Jesus has done for you. Question isn't, are you gonna respond to the cross? The real question is, how will you respond? Jesus, I pray for each person here, including myself, that once again, we would see the cross and recognize what it means for us, what it means what you have done on our behalf. You have rescued us from an empty life. And time and time again, we go back to that empty life. We settle for those things that we think will fulfill us that are broken. And we choose to turn away from that once again this morning and to turn back towards you and to remember what we have in you. Would we... Would we savor that? Would we let that soak in? Would you lead us to the cross once again? 
so we can be the people that you have created us to be. Thank you, Jesus, that you're here with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I hope you believe what you just sang because he is good. The cross proclaims that. And for you, for those who will be podcasting this or listening to it via the internet, I didn't know I was looking for Jesus when I chose to receive him into my life, when I chose to trust and obey him. It is a defining moment decision. And some of you are right there. You know that you need to make that choice. And we would love to help you do that. You don't need us to do that. You have direct access to God because of what Jesus did on the cross. You can ask him to come into your life and, and he will. But we would, we would love to do that with you as well. Over here are Jerry and Jack. Over here are Ron and Kathy. Now you know them. I took away your excuses to go pray with them, right? And the reality is trusting and obeying Jesus means there are going to be times where there are withdrawals. Probably the reality is every week you've had some withdrawals in your life. Someone's hurt you. Someone's wronged you. Things are difficult. And that's one of the reasons why he gives us each other is so we can pray together. You can go pray with them as well. Many of us, God is blessed and is working powerfully. We're quick to ask him for things. We need to be just as quick to thank him and praise him for those things. We would love to pray for you in that way and pray with you as well. But how will you respond to the cross? That is the real question. Not if, but how. And I pray that you respond by choosing to trust and obey this amazing God who lavishes his grace and his love upon us. There's a verse I want to leave you with here this morning. I highly recommend that you memorize this. I memorized this long ago. And I say it to myself often to remind myself of who I am, especially when those withdrawals come. This is Galatians 2, chapter 20. It says this, I have been crucified with Christ. And therefore, I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's our story. So let's go live it out. Jesus, I pray for all of us that we would choose to take you at your word, to believe you, to trust and obey you, and to live out our identity as your children. And Lord, again, for anyone who is listening who does not know you or isn't sure if they know you, would they make that certain by inviting you into their lives as their Lord and Savior? You've been waiting. You've been waiting for this moment. Would they now respond to you by doing just that? And for those of us who know you, let's go live this out, Lord, through the empowerment of your spirit because you have changed our lives because of the cross and your resurrection. And we celebrate that. And it's in your name we pray. And God's people said, amen. Amen. So go live for him. And we hope to see you next week. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.